I like mini preps because they're so easy and it's just like fun to do and it always works. I was like, yeah, yeah, I like mini preps too. <laughs> Said no one ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, that guy liked them. You know, funny, uh, what's your favorite protocol is always the line I used on first dates. Yeah, that's fantastic. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week on the show, we tell you how not to choose your career and give you some tips for finding the work you love. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 18. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. How's it going, Dan? It is going quite well, sir. How are you doing? I am doing great. I am having a wonderful night so far. Glad to hear it. Now, you have a very special ethanol for us. This this is going really above and beyond, I think. I do, Dan. I had originally told you, because it's fall, that I was going to go out and get us some pumpkin beer, that we had to do it. Save it. Well, it turns out we both don't like pumpkin beer. (laughs) (laughs) Makes it harder to want to drink it, yeah. So, you know what? I decided, let's break out my favorite bourbon tonight. Wow. You have a, a... Small glass of something with an ice cube floating. Yeah, so this is, Dan, this is Basil Hayden's Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Oh, Kentucky. Nice. Your home state. Yeah, and... Of your college degree. And my drink of choice. I really like bourbon, so I appreciate this, Josh. I probably can't afford Basil Hayden. I I like that you're sharing it with me. I'll tell you what, I had uh, some really good friends who, you'll remember my birthday and your birthday was uh, back in August. And they gifted me this awesome bottle of Basil Hayden's. Well, thank you to them. It is quite good. It is very, very smooth, very easy to drink. A little bit sweet. Yeah, I would say if you are a bourbon drinker, or even if you would like to be a bourbon drinker, you should try this, but be careful. It will be hard to go back to anything less. Yeah, the thing I like about bourbon is that, and it must come from the oak barrel, it's like that little bit of buttery flavor in a really good bourbon. And it it should not burn and you shouldn't wince, but you also should not gulp it either. So Yeah, this is not my I whiskey. How, I don't know how everybody drinks bourbon, but I don't like This is gulp not it. my whiskey sour bourbon right here. Yeah, exactly. And you know, actually I was I was having some of this with a friend of mine uh, a few weeks ago and we tried it side by side with some Knob Creek, which is another bourbon I normally that don't. swell. <laughs> normally uh on my budget, that's a, a good bourbon for me. And the Knob Creek tasted like rocket fuel next to this stuff. I mean, I think that is pretty good bourbon. Our our poor graduate student listeners are probably cursing at you right now. <laughs> Once you get your real job, maybe when you get your PhD, yeah. tell your family and friends or your lab that you want a bottle of Basil Hayden's. Put down the ancient age, friends. <laughs> That's right. If if the department is paying, yeah. look for the Basil Hayden's. Bourbon has to be 51% corn. Did you know that? I didn't know that. At least 51% corn. You know, and this one actually, I know, has a little bit higher rye content, which I think contributes a little bit to that smoothness. Interesting. Well, hopefully they didn't push it too far. It's not a bourbon. Well, I don't know. It says so on the label, but we'll see. So you read some science this week. I'm excited to hear about it. I did, Dan, and this jumped out at me because you might remember a couple weeks ago, we talked a lot about bees. Yeah, it was the the productivity episode on hive-like thinking. Yes, the the lab as a hive, as a beehive. And so um, this article jumped out at me because of two things. One, the bees, but also something else that I'm a big fan of, even more than bees, and that is caffeine. 
I have no idea how these two are going to go together. Well, so, have you had too much bourbon already? <laughs> I don't think so, but I'll let you be the judge of that in just a minute. All right. So what these researchers did, this was published recently in the journal Current Biology, which is actually a cell journal, a cell press journal. And their article is entitled, Caffeinated Forage Tricks Honeybees into Increasing Foraging and Recruitment Behaviors. Oh, no. And so I'll tell you, one reason why this was cool to me is this struck me as the type of experiment that a 10th grade science fair student could probably pull off. Okay, so let me tell you what they did. All right, this was a team of biologists from the University of Sussex, and they set up two feeders, and each of the feeders had identical sugar solutions. And they trained these bees to eat out of, uh, out of these feeders. And so what they did then was they added caffeine to one of the feeders. And they didn't just jump, dump a ton of caffeine, Dan, but did you realize some flowers actually have caffeinated nectar? Is that true? Apparently so. Like coffee flowers or <laughs> something that I could grow here? I have to find out what exact flowers these are. They, if you see me eating handfuls of flowers <laughs> in the morning, you'll know why. That's right. Uh, so, so what they did was they actually added caffeine in the concentration that would be found naturally in whatever these magical caffeinated flowers would be. And it turned out that the bees, over a three-hour period, would return to the caffeinated feeder much more than the non-caffeinated okay so they were they were mimicking some biological process to understand that particular flower they weren't just trying to like jack up some bees so they made honey faster yeah and that would be fun but apparently this is a real thing when you first talked about this this is my fear is that beekeepers across the world were going to try and increase bee output by just caffeinating everybody and and hurting the bees oh yeah fred we messed up them bees yeah i mean we've already got colony collapse disorder like leave (laughs) the poor bees alone those bees are buzzed (laughs) yeah they are so anyway dan but it gets cooler than that because what they did was they actually went and observed the bees in their hive and specifically they checked out their waggle oh the dance the dance so apparently bees if they discover a quality food source will do a certain amount of dancing. Some people do that too, technically. (laughs) That is true. In proportion to the quality of the food they just found. Okay, and they were excited about this caffeine? Well, what happened was the caffeine actually caused the bees to overdo it. They would get Uh, a little extra excited and they would oversell the quality of the food source. That guy, yep. The guy who gets too drunk and instead of instead of dancing and looking cool, he's like falling on the floor. Exactly. So remember, Dan, the two feeders had identical amounts of sugar, but the message the bees went back and gave to their friends was, dude, you got to go try out the Starbucks on the right. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and so it gets even funnier because what happened was eventually they removed the sugar solution entirely and the bees kept going back longer than they normally would have to the empty feeder just to make sure there wasn't sugar there again. This explains so much of my mornings. <laughs> That's right. This is I think this is telling us something about why Starbucks is so popular. Yeah, I hear the I hear we've got this cool coffee pot at work that grinds its own beans inside the machine and makes the coffee all at the same time. Oh, and you probably hear that sound. Yeah, you hear it and you just you your ears perk up. And then everybody makes a, a beeline to uh, the coffee machine. Well, you know, the, the quote from the article, which was sort of the punchline, was, overall, caffeine causes bees to overestimate forage quality, tempting the colony into suboptimal foraging strategies, which makes the relationship between pollinator and plant less mutualistic and more exploitative. This explains why my employer provides coffee. 
and why I always think my work is better after I drink it, but it probably isn't. Gee, Dan, that must sting. Ah, wow. Okay. The puns must end. <laughs> well, that is fascinating. And if you want to learn more about bees, we will post the link to the article in the show notes. Excellent, sir. So, Dan, what are we going to talk about this week? Well, you have been asking, and and I'm sure the listeners have been wondering, what the heck I'm doing on this program? Yeah, you know, Dan, this is something, and I've been bugging bugging you about this for a while. I feel like, you know, we've been at this now for over four months now, and I feel like I talk a lot about my path and, and you know, the things that, that I do in academia, but I know the listeners really want to know, what is this Dan guy? What's his deal? Yeah, well, I am ready to tell it because you have plied me with your high, high-grade bourbon. As you know, and, and the listeners will soon come to find out, graduate school was easily the hardest part of my life so far. Hopefully it doesn't get any harder than that, but it was it was really a a bad dark time for me and I know that that is probably the case for other people who are listening. The good news is the light at the end of the tunnel is I have found a new thing to do um and I get to build on all the stuff I learned in grad school and so um I thought I would tell that story and use that as the example of what you shouldn't do and and what I know now and what you should do. Yeah, and that is something we always want to accomplish on the show, and that is if somebody else has made mistakes before you, why not learn from them rather than make the same mistakes yourself? Mistakes, I've made a few. (laughs) We'll cue that up in the background. I did it my way. So Dan, start us out. Tell us about your life. Well, I'm not going to give a a ton of detail on this, but bear with me. So you were born in a small town in Pennsylvania. Well, it's funny because I was going to say it started in seventh grade in science class. I don't know if you had the same textbook I did, but we had this picture in our biology textbook of a tobacco plant that they had inserted a, a firefly gene into. So luciferase in the tobacco plant, the thing glows in the dark. And when you're in seventh grade, that is about as close to magic as you can imagine. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I still think that's cool. Yeah, I do too. And and I think a lot of people in science have had that kind of transformative experience. I don't know if there was something for you that clicked and you said, I've got to be in biology. Yeah, you know, I think it just, I think it was just DNA, the idea that there was this information that made us who we are in so many different ways that you could actually read and understand and make predictions and change. It was just very fascinating to me. Yeah, I hope um, people out there listening, if there was some moment where you're like, yeah, I've got to be part of that, and and I don't know how young you were or how old you were, tweet it to us because I would love to hear what it was that caught you. I think for everybody, it's this. It's some notion that I'm going to cure a disease or I'm going to help somebody out or I'm going to figure out why this bacteria causes this thing. I don't know. There's always some hook. Um, And so that's what it was for me. It was this idea that you could take um, some trait from one animal or plant or insect and put it somewhere else and make something happen. Like, it's fairly awesome. It's very cool. Um, So after I graduated from high school, I applied to... To programs and I got into a biotechnology program at the University of Kentucky. Great timing with the bourbon. Where bourbon comes from, <laughs> yeah. So so I went there and, and I worked in um, in a plant genetics lab. That was my first lab experience. I thought at the time like, oh, maybe I really want to work in, in something medically relevant. So maybe I want to help cure some disease. And so I found a job in, the, in a micro lab in the hospital there and, and we studied Toxoplasma gondii. Which was a word of the week a few it weeks ago. It was back. a word of the week, yeah. Your, your parasite friend. Um, 
And I the, thought you were my parasite friend. I am. I'm <laughs> drinking your expensive <laughs> bourbon. You know, I really liked the people, but my experiments never worked. It was it was a high risk, potentially high gain project, but but it just didn't work out. Um, so how did that make you feel? Were you obviously you were very excited? I can remember early on in science, you are still a little naive. You expect the experiments to work out. Yep. Uh, so how did you react when when they didn't? For a lot of it, I thought you know I worked there during classes during the school year, and then more full time over the summer. But I thought, oh, you know, I'm not full-time. So I, I saw other people in the lab getting experiments done and publishing papers. And I thought, well, it's probably just because I'm busy with these other things and I don't have the full-time to commit to it. Um, so I was able to explain it away. You know, I still wanted to go on to graduate school. It's still, I, I think when you have a certain level of training, if you're, if you're an educated person and you have the opportunity, you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, right? And, and it's something, there's some prestige to that. And so I think that at that time that still pulled me. So I thought, well, I know I don't want to be a medical doctor because that's a lot of gross stuff I don't want to deal with. But, you know, I could be a PhD. I like biology. I do well in science. Yeah, and I assume you had, you had done well in school. I certainly did. Thank you for asking. Yeah, and I think I, I totally... School was the one thing I was good at. Well, I totally identify with that, Dan, because a lot of times, you know, if especially an undergraduate, you're good at school, you're good at classes, you're good at college. Graduate school seems like a natural keep next step. More of the same. Keep doing it. So even though I didn't know exactly what I wanted to study, red flag. I mean, nobody knows exactly what they want to study, but you should at least care about something, right? Um, I applied mostly to these umbrella programs where you could rotate in a lot of different places. I was ready to leave behind that lab because I thought, oh, this the success I'm not finding is because of this place and this situation. Um, I've got to move on to, to do better. Mm-hmm. I applied to a couple of schools. I got into them. Um, and I remember those interviews being really funny because you've got to put on this show of being really confident and competent. But I hadn't had any success so far <laughs> to make me feel that way. Like I did well in classes. Yeah. Um, and I remember very specifically a time... Um, one of the people interviewing me said, so what's your favorite protocol? Like, which experiment do you like to do? <laughs> what's your favorite protocol? <laughs> I mean, no, that was literally the question. Yeah. And I was like, oh, um, I'll have to think about that. And and he answered, oh, I like mini preps because they're so easy and it's just like fun to do and it always works. I was like, yeah, yeah, I like mini preps too. <laughs> said no one ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, that guy liked them. You know, funny, uh, what's your favorite protocol was always the line I used on first dates. <laughs> yeah, that's cr- <laughs> fantastic. But I felt, you know, I felt like such a fake on these interviews because I didn't feel, you know, I hadn't met with all the success, but I was trying to get into this position because I thought then it would... It would be better. You know what's ironic, Dan, is you know, I'm on the other side now and I'm involved in graduate school admissions these days. And now you have a favorite protocol? <laughs> I have several. But one of the things that actually is looked favorably upon is if an applicant says, you know what, I've been in the lab and I've met with lots of experiments that don't work, um, but I'm still here. I'm still going through and I understand that most experiments don't work. That's actually viewed as a positive thing. But a lot of applicants don't know that. No, you know, I didn't know it either. They didn't work, but I kept chasing Mm -hmm. that moment when they would. And so, um, you know, that is a a perfect setup to be disappointed later on when you finally realize that it doesn't always work. Um, So anyway, we got into the same program, you and I. We did. So you got to you got to UNC as a as a new PhD student. 
came out of my experience as a as an agricultural biotechnologist and microbiologist. Uh, I rotated in bioinformatics, cell biology, and a and a kind of cool microscopy lab. Um, and in each of those rotations, like my experiments, you know, didn't amount to much. But again, I was in a rotation and I was taking classes. You know, only what I mean? so much you can get done. Exactly. It's it's such a tough route. Um, and and I ended up going with that cell biology lab. Um, and I picked it. You know, looking back, I probably would have done better in bioinformatics or something more data intensive. Um, I think there are several aspects of science that I could have really succeeded and done well and been excited about, but um, I didn't pick those because I had no idea what I wanted to do, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I, I took this job, and after the two years of the classes, which I did well in classes and I liked classes, um, I was just in lab, and I hadn't made any progress in lab. And it was year three, and I still wasn't making any progress in lab, but I didn't have this excuse anymore. And that was kind of when um, I turned that corner. So do you think that, I guess your perspective was that you weren't making any progress compared to other people? Do you think that was actually true? Or that really you were having a very typical graduate student experience? It's just your perception was that you specifically were failing uh, at the process. You know, I can't say it was my perception. And and I think it's like, it's the Facebook effect, right? Everybody goes on Greek vacations, but you, mm-hmm. um, because you only talk about the good things. But, but honestly, looking back, I could have chosen a path that fit my own skills and abilities and personality, but I didn't because I didn't know what those things were. So do you mean you could have chosen a better path even within the context of graduate school? Totally. I, I totally believe that's true. You know, it, this is where it sort of went downhill, and you'll remember all of this. This is when I formed the Quarter Life Crisis Support Group because I said to myself, I don't know what I want to do with my life, but I know it's not this. Yes. Um, and things really fell apart in the lab for me. Um, sort of by the end of year three, I was thinking like, I don't know how many more years I have left ahead of me. I know I'm not making any progress. I don't fit in with these people or with this system. Um, every experiment I have to do is just like, I have to drag myself into the lab to do it. Cause I, I just expected it to fail. I felt so hopeless about it. Um, but the thought of quitting was awful. You know, it, it's, it's so stigmatized in the field. And I thought about my friends and my family and my lab mates are going to think, Oh, I'm a quitter. And I don't want to, you know, if I quit this, I'm going to quit everything in life. It's, it's all of these things that you do in your mind when you, when you don't see the way out and, uh, you know, it's just such a lonely, terrible place. So I suspect people listening to this podcast, there are a few out there that are in this situation. And uh, this is why I'm doing it. So around around that time, I said, I can't do it anymore. I'm going to have to quit. And so I wrote this long letter and I, I need to dig it up. It's on a hard drive somewhere. Maybe I'll dig it out and... and we'll put it in the show notes. No, we're not going <laughs> to put it in the show notes. Cause I, yeah, I'll have to find it. But I gave it to my PI and I like typed it up, I laid it on her chair, and I walked somewhere. Um, and later she, you know... She, what did it say? The gist was that I got into this thinking it was going to be this one thing. And in reality, it was something totally different. So I think in my mind, the the things I was really drawn to were the idea that I could apply these cool things that life did, put them together, and make something new. So you put the firefly in the tobacco, 
you know, if we could put toxoplasma into a cancer cell or if we could, you know, there, there are ways to transform these traits into some application. And what I was doing was like pulling apart. I was taking this single protein and a single cell type in a s- certain conditions. And then I was looking at this one amino acid and this one, you know, so focused on, on the pulling apart and nothing applied. Like I, I had no idea that this was actually going to do any help for anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that was really hard for me. And I said that in the letter um, and she and I had a conversation and she said, basically, I think we can find a way we can try and modify your project. Can you pick up this piece and not that piece? Um, and I ended up staying, but that didn't make it easier because I still, you know, it still wasn't a good fit for me, but now I felt like, um, you know, she felt like she was giving me the second chance and I felt like I'm still doing this thing I hate and I felt resentful and I don't know, it was awful. Yeah, so you, I have a couple thoughts. You know, the first one is certainly there are labs out there that do more of the things that, that you like to do. Certainly, but I wasn't in them and I was in year three and I didn't want to start over. Yeah, it's very hard to think about, especially if you feel like I don't want to be here forever. It's hard to think about taking a step back and changing midstream. Some people do, and maybe that's something we will talk about on a future show. Yeah, but, we should. But that's a really hard process. So, Dan, so obviously you did persist and you did finish with your PhD. How did you do that? Could, Why did you do that? Yeah, it was... And so here's where the story can turn a bit of a corner. I mean, lab was still terrible for me. It was still a source of incredible stress in my life. Um, but I started... You were, you were really hard to be around. Yeah, I'm sure it was a good time. <laughs> insufferable comes to mind yeah um around that time i started to ask am am i doomed to be unhappy in everything i do right maybe there's nothing out there that's going to be fun um work is just going to suck forever and you know there's the possibility it crosses your mind like maybe i don't like this and i won't like anything else um but i started to ask what is it that i would really like to do you remember how insufferable i was around this time i read every possible career book you did I talked to career counselors. I took every personality survey, every strength inventory, every whatever I could get my hand on. Yeah, I mean, if there was a benefit for me, I learned a lot about myself <laughs> because uh, you had all of these all of these ideas and resources because uh, you're doing all that for, yeah. for your own journey. Yeah, I made I made different lists of jobs I thought I might like, and every one of them seemed exciting at first. So I, you know, for a while I was going to do genetic counseling. So I got the the biology background. Mm-hmm. You know how terrible that would be for me if I had to tell people sad things about that. Yeah, I don't see that as a good. No, it wasn't you. a good one. I was going to do biomanufacturing. Might have been fun for a while because um, I really do like process improvement. Um, but you know, I went to a career fair and they told me, "Yeah, we don't hire people like you." Like and they meant PhDs because yeah. they assume you're going to get bored and quit. Um, but every time Which I could got, have been true for you, it, it it probably was true, but I was still developing the sense of like, what is it I wanted to do? Um, and I, I joined like every possible society. I would interview people, um, and learning more about what they did. And every time I kind of hit this wall, I was like, no, I don't like that because of X. Um, and so by the end of it, you know, I, I really realized that the stuff that makes you happy, the the things that make a career good for you are a little bit like these pieces that you have to fit together. I, I started to categorize them basically. And I said, okay, so what are the types of things that I like to do? Like what skills do I like using? 
And if I can use those skills on a certain subject, that'll probably be pretty interesting to me. And if I can get that skill set and those subjects to align and I can find a work environment where it motivates me, and if I can do that and, and it'll pay me enough, now I've got a job. Um, so basically, in the end, I created this framework to understand what type of work would make me happy. Um, and I started to think of the, my career as this puzzle that I needed to piece together. And the first piece is like my skill set. What are the things that I love to do that I'm good at doing um, the things that I lose track of time. And we talk about this all the time on the show. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think we, we mentioned it just a week or two ago, and that is ideally you want to find that career where the things you're naturally good at and the things that are important to you line up. Yeah, so so one of the things I realized about myself, I like organizing information. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one of the cool things about the skills that you have as a human being, you will notice them... Almost imme- like when you're a little, little kid, you will begin to do things a certain way. Um, and those will develop over time and they'll change, but, but you'll see them even then. So I like to, to organize information. I work with databases now. Um, but even when I was like six or seven years old, I went into the pantry and I saw all the cans lined up on the <laughs> shelf. And I was like, hmm, these beans aren't near these other beans. Maybe I should put them together. And I started to organize them. Yeah. And, and you're laughing but at the time, it was so satisfying to me, and I felt like I did a good job. Um, and I do that now, but I do it with a database, mm-hmm. and I do it with um, the the types of things that make a good career. You know, all the time, I am. It's inherent in me to try to put these things in order. Yeah, and I've heard you talk about it before, but you know, your interest in in doing some of those things, you actually were exposed to pieces of that in graduate school. Absolutely. One of the things that I, one of the, the few things that I really enjoyed in graduate school was making a database. Um, we had a mouse colony. Nobody asked me to do it. I was like, I should make a database about this. And I figured out how to do it. Um, and I maintained it. I hated the mice, but I liked the database about the mice. It's sort of like organizing the beans, I guess. It's exactly like organizing so. beans. Um, you know, I realized one of the things that I love doing is learning new things. I think it's what carried me through school. It's what made science appealing to me, but it's not necessarily just devoted to science it's learning in general so if i'm learning i'm usually pretty happy so you obviously put a lot of time into figuring out what type of career was the best fit for you so tell me a little bit about you know you you got to the point where you were finishing with your phd and i happen to know that your your first job after your phd was very very different it was not a an academic research position at all but but something very different how did you get that position um and how did you sort of take that that leap into something very different? Yeah, I'm I'm glad you asked. So, so once I knew these skills that I could use, I had to. I, I realized that I could apply them in in the field of biomedical research, but I also realized you can apply them anywhere. I think you have to really think about, and what I had to really think about is what inspires you. What magazines and blogs do you read? It may tell you what types of of field you may want to work in. Um, and you can apply your your skills in those fields. So it turns out I was very excited about energy efficiency and the environment. And so I, I thought I could probably combine these skills that I've discovered in that field and do something cool with it. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of networking and a lot of um, uh, research in that area. And my first job was doing carbon accounting um, at the university. It was a very tough job to get. 
But I think when you when you apply for a job and you are so confident, by that time I was so confident in what I could do. I knew what my skills were. And I was so excited about the field that I wanted to work in that I was able to kind of talk my way into that job even though I had zero background whatsoever in it. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's great advice to to really anyone out there who's listening who's thinking about maybe a career shift into something that that is a little different than what the direction that most people go in, maybe not a postdoc or at least maybe if you are a postdoc not a a traditional research career and that is being very aware of the skills that you do have that maybe are less appreciated or at least less talked about because there are things you know and that you're good at that aren't just techniques, that aren't just Western blots or or doing genetics, right? But these transferable skills, which is the buzzword, um, that actually are are very sought after in lots of other lots of other industries, lots of other jobs. But you have to be aware that you have those skills so that you can communicate to others in the field where you want to go that you have them. You might you might be great at at synthesizing information and writing um, technical information, maybe for a general audience. Now, you can choose to apply that anywhere you want to. You don't have to just do it in lab. You know, you can you can be a science writer. You can be a journalist. You can, um, if you're a policy wonk, go write policy um, using that ability that you've developed, uh, and, and maybe that is inherent to you, and. I don't know. It like it is so flexible to be able to come mix and match these these skills with different fields that kind of work for you as long as you're willing to to see that big picture basically. So then Dan, how did you feel? So you were, you know, you very much felt like a fish out of water during graduate school. So then, you know, you get out of graduate school yeah, and now I, you're in this very different world, this very different position um that you got to through a lot of self-reflection and you know a lot of networking and a lot of effort so how did it feel day to day once you were out of the research world and in this new place uh, it it didn't feel like work um i looked back through some old emails of the time before i had graduated and they were they were so down and so negative um and then i you know i saw a couple emails after i had gotten out and somebody asked me like how's the new the new job and i think people kind of considered me a weirdo for for leaving out of it but i wrote it is it's really exciting and i go home and i have more energy i'm not drained i'm not tired i'm not um beat up like i'm even more excited about the next day and and i have to say you know for all the lack of results i had in the first i don't know how many years of of my scientific training um in the first few years of doing this other job um I was invited to to speak at events. I was keynote speaker at several things. The local NPR station called me to interview me about something. Um, I was in newspaper articles. The work that I was doing was being noticed, and it was because it was an expression of what I loved. And and people pick up on that. And when you're when you're really hitting your your skills and you're applying it in the right place, I think it can totally change the nature of your work. Yeah, I agree. It- it's where you you reach a point that the work the work feels easy and the if that passion is there that's what people are drawn to people can can see that yeah and so i guess Dan, what what advice would you have then for certainly graduate students or postdocs who are listening right now who maybe are where you were who you know they're going into lab day after day but they really just know deep down 
this is not what I want to do. This is not what I'm made for. This doesn't yeah. fit me, but I don't know where else to go. I don't know what else to do. Yeah. Um, so just first of all, know that there are other people that feel that way and have felt that way. Um, you know, I was able to answer the question, is anything going to make me happy? The answer is yes. Um, there is something out there that's going to make you happy. Um, and, and my advice is to start working on it now. I don't mean quit your job. I don't mean, you know, sell your house and move somewhere. I mean, start thinking about these things. And, and we should do a show on how you figure out what your skills are and a show on how you find out what, what field you want to be in. Um, and, and some of the other aspects we talk about that, that make you happy in your career. Um, I've, I've heard the quote, the best time to plant a tree is 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. The second best time is today. And so when you're looking at, oh, I made all these choices and now I'm stuck. You're not stuck. When you're 80, you're going to say, I wish I had started when I was 40. Mm-hmm. And when you're 90, you're going to say, I wish I had started when I was 60. So wherever you happen to be today, start working to understand what it is you want to do um, because you can change it. And, and once you find that perfect kind of matchup of these pieces, um, all sorts of good things happen. Yeah, I think that that is great advice, um, Dan. Uh, that that's a great that was a great story, and, and you know I hope there was it's a, a lot terrible story. I mean, it turns out all right. No, but. it is a great story, and and here's why, Dan. And you know, I was thinking about the present, right? And I know the past we both went through going through the training process and the, those challenges, but the fact that both of us can say, having been through that, having been through those challenges, that today on the other side we're both in careers, in jobs, in situations where we're excited about what we're doing, we're enthusiastic, but at the same time, we didn't just say, well, that time in graduate school was a complete waste, right? We can look back on it and say, yes, it was challenging. I learned a lot about myself that maybe that wasn't for me, but there actually were some things I learned and some things I got out of it that I took with me. Um, And a lot of it was just opening our minds to, um, the breadth of avenues that were available and the breadth of skills we were actually getting that people don't explicitly tell you when you're on the inside. And so graduate students, postdocs, if you're out there listening, you're thinking about your career, it is okay to put the pipetters down and take some time, you know, devote some energy into thinking about who you are, what you're good at, what you're interested in, and what careers are a match for that. And maybe that will involve um, reading books, taking surveys, or just getting out there and going to conferences outside of your field, uh, going and meeting people in your community outside of science or outside of cell biology or whatever it is that your lab goes to, right? But really just putting yourself out there and some of the things will stick. But I imagine, Dan, I've heard you say this too, you might spend 75% of your time talking to people that are doing other things you don't want to do, but that's okay as well. I am not a genetic counselor today, but I spent plenty of time exploring that career, yeah. Dan, one thing I know about both of us is we're both very passionate about um, helping other people follow career paths that are that are good fits for them, and that's one of the big reasons we wanted to start this podcast was a way to talk about some of these things that we went through, like some of the things that you talked about today to help people who are going through the process now get to where they want to go. And so I know a lot of the things you mentioned and a lot of things you talked about probably are spurring questions or specific situations our listeners are going through. So I want to encourage all of you out there, if you have specific questions um, unique to you or 
things you would like elaborated on having to do with career path or figuring out what your skills are, what your interests are, certainly let us know what those are. You know, feel free to email us uh, podcast at hellophd.com or tweet Facebook us and, and we would love to talk about these things more on the show. Awesome. Um, let us move on to the etymology puzzle of the week, if we could. Word of the week. Last week's clue was a spooky one for Halloween. It was, though it may be beautifully decorated, don't lie down in this ancient limestone box. It will eat your flesh and leave only bones. I have good news. I think I know it. Was it too obvious? Should I have made it harder? Well, you know, my first thought was coffin. Okay, yeah. And then I was like, wow, that doesn't seem right. So then I thought... Rarely limestone coffins, but possible. Well, I thought bones. I was thinking sarcomeres. Wow. Look at you. Eat. I know, like, phagocytosis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got it. You got all the parts. Sarcophagus. That is exactly it. Yes. Um, and, And I included the beautifully decorated in there since... That's what we think of when we think of Egyptian sarcophagi. I think that's the plural. Um, but literally, sarcophagus, sarcophagus, flesh eating. Um, and and one of the fascinating things about this is um, this sarks, sarcos, is the same root for sarcasm. I was just going to ask that. It is exactly what it is. So it's it's this flesh-rending humor that I use so often. Um is the same root word. But I think it's pretty cool. Like, I always heard the word sarcophagus, sarcophagus, and I never thought about what it meant. I just thought that box was called a sarcophagus. Like, end of story. But it means, like, it's a certain type of limestone that, I guess, the the chemistry helps break down flesh. Yeah, that's what I wondered. Is there actually chemistry involved in that, or it's just you put a body in there... You open it up years later and it's just bones. So. I mean, limestone is like calcium carbonate or something. Yeah. Somebody will write in and tell us that's wrong. Um, but yeah, I think I think the chemistry of it is it actually helps to absorb and break down the flesh. Fascinating. Gross. That, that was a good one and timely for Halloween. So yeah, that Dan, was the idea. what do you have for this week? Okay, the clue this week, and you're going to hate this. Peanuts grow underground, but pre-nuts are from what entirely different kingdom? I will read it again. Peanuts grow underground, but pre-nuts are from what entirely different kingdom? And you are making a very funny face. Uh, Remember, I am looking for a scientific word described by the clue. And once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. I'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. That one struck me as funny. I will not send them any pre-nuts. <laughs> Thank you. I'm sure they will appreciate that. You're welcome. Dan, that was a great show. Thanks for uh, thanks for opening up and sharing your story. I know well, a lot of people have been asking and wondering about your, your story. Luckily, I had plenty of Basil Hayden, and I have no idea what I just said. Hey, if you guys are into bourbon, definitely check out the Basil Hayden. Um, we've enjoyed talking to you this week. I really enjoyed learning more about my good friend Dan. If there are questions you have or you want to share your story, feel free to email us, podcast at hellophd.com. We'd love to talk to you on the show. Send us a tweet if you have ideas uh, for an upcoming show. We're at hellophd, and we will look forward to being back with you next week. Watch out for the caffeinated bees.
You said nuts.